Welcome, everyone, to Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. I am joined by special guest today, Richard Capriola. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, we are going to dive into your book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse, and the workbook that goes along with it. And I'm excited to talk about both. But before we do, can you give us a little bit of a background with your work in this field? Sure. Um, I started out working in the field of education for a, a long period of time. I was in Illinois at the time. And as I transitioned out of that field, uh, I moved into uh, working uh, part time at a mental health crisis center. And we would we would accept patients from the emergency room who uh, were having a, a mental health uh, crisis. And I uh, noticed a number of them also had a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the University of Illinois and obtained a degree in what is basically addictions counseling. Um, I continued to work at the the crisis center for a while until I was offered a position at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Menninger Clinic is a large psychiatric hospital in Houston, Texas that serves adolescents and adults uh, from around the world. It's a a psychiatric hospital, one one of the best in the country, I think. And I was offered a position as an addictions counselor. So I worked for Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas for uh, uh, over a decade, uh, working as an addictions counselor for both adolescents and adults. And so many times I would sit across from a family and I would go through their child's history of using substances, what substances they'd been using, how long they'd been using, and so on and so forth. And I'd give them the diagnosis that their child has what we call a substance use disorder. And when I finished, they would look across at me and they would often say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they might say, well, I thought something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. So I want, and these are good parents. These are very good parents doing the best they can in difficult circumstances. Um, So after I retired from Menninger, I wanted to put together this short resource. I wanted to keep it short because I know parents don't have a lot of time to read volumes of information. So I kept it at around 100 pages, but I tried to pack it with a lot of uh, basic information, like the review of street drugs that are out there. Parents know about alcohol and marijuana, but they may not be familiar with some of the other drugs that are out there on the street that kids have access to. I wanted them to have a basic understanding of how these drugs work in the adolescent brain and the importance of protecting the adolescent brain. So I put a chapter in on the neural science of addiction. Um, and then I, um, I talk about the different assessments that a family should get if they suspect their child is using a substance, what tests, what assessments are important. And then I talk a little bit about what we call process disorders, which are different than chemical disorders. Chemical disorders are alcohol and drugs. Process disorders are behavioral. Uh, examples would be eating disorders and self-injury. And those can often accompany a child, sometimes accompany a child who's using a substance. And then I wanted them to know what the treatment options are, everything from outpatient to inpatient to residential, what questions they should be asking a provider. Uh, And then I wanted to put in a bunch of resources. Um, I wrote the uh, parent handbook um, because I wanted to provide a resource for parents. Parents need help too. And I put together this short workbook that has a number of exercises in it that allow uh, parents to be able to work through some of these issues 
issues that they're confronting as a parent. One example is uh, one of the exercises is you write a letter to your child. You don't have to share it with your child, but you write a letter and, and it gives you an opportunity just to put in writing all that you're going through and everything that you're feeling as a result of confronting this issue of having a child with a substance abuse issue. So I wanted to provide a brief workbook for parents as well as the main book, which is hopefully a, 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 an instructional document for them. And the you when you introduced it right away, one of the things that came to mind when I was reading page one, page one of your book says one of the things that just stands out is how did I miss the warnings? Yeah. And that just hits you right away as a professional that does this, but I, I know as like a parent as well, that all of a sudden when they're in the position where they ask that things are not in a good situation, usually things are pretty rough when they, when they ask that, but it's a really good question that how, how do parents, how do people miss some of those warning signs that there's something going on and your book's trying to show what are those warning signs and, and what not to miss? Yeah, I, I think parents miss the warning sign for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, this is an issue. This is a topic that parents want to stay away from. They want to shy away from it. They believe it can never happen to their kid. And it's a scary subject. So like all scary things, we, we tend to avoid them. Uh, but that can turn out to be a disaster in some cases. Um, the other issue is they miss the warning signs because nobody ever told them what the warning signs were to look for. Uh, you know, that Nobody ever, ever, ever told them, hey, you, these are the kinds of things that, that you should look for. And, 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 and another thing is, is they often interpret these behaviors as just being a normal adolescent acting out crazy behaviors. And, and some of it is, some of it is just right. acting yeah. out crazy behaviors. Um, but some of it might also be an indicator that there's something else going on under the surface. And, and parents don't have the training to be able to figure out, okay, is this some just crazy normal behavior? Or is this something that is more indicative that there's something underneath the surface that that I need to know about. And that's the purpose of getting some of the assessments done. And it's great too, that you highlight that parents aren't taught this. And that's got to be really hard for parents because when something starts to go on or something starts to happen, you know, people react and, and well, what did, what did the parents do? Or why didn't the parents know this? And as a parent, it's like, you know, we're supposed to know everything. We're supposed to have all the answers. We're supposed to know what to do, but that's not something that you're just given or like born with that knowledge. Like someone needs to teach that to you and educate you on that. You need to be willing to, to listen to that, but that's not something that parents are just equipped with to handle something like a substance use disorder or even problems with substances or other behaviors, that's not just automatically given to you when you become a parent. 
No, we're not equipped as parents from the very beginning to, to, to deal with some of these issues. So we do the best we can. And, and unfortunately, in, in, in many cases, that involves a parent being thrown in, in, in the middle of a crisis when they discover their child is using a substance. And maybe it's a result of the, of the kid getting in trouble or going to the hospital or some other event that, that develops into a crisis. And then the entire family gets into a crisis mode. Parents then start to feel guilty. How did I miss the warning signs? What did I do wrong? What kind of a parent have I been? And they go through that whole cycle themselves. So my suggestion is regardless of the age of your child, five, six, seven, eight, 10, 15, 18, whatever, get a copy of this book, learn the information, not, not to become paranoid over this, but just to become more confident, more educated, more aware. Uh, I think knowledge is power. So the more that you know, the better you are. If nothing else, perhaps it'll just make you feel better that if you have to deal with this issue, you can deal with it. Um, uh, you know, I, I just think knowing this information helps you, helps prepare you in the event that you need it down the road. And, and, in today's world, too, it's even more access to information and knowledge, not just for the parents, but for the to kids to learn about drugs and alcohol and other things. You know, I remember when I one of the reasons why I love having you on the podcast is because I first started working with kids 12 to 17 years ago when I was first doing counseling. It was group homework. Yeah. And I always remember that as things have progressed and as things like social media and the internet and all that, I always tell parents nowadays that they're either going to learn from you. They're going to learn from your peers. They're going to learn from social media or some other internet resource, or they're going to learn from a professional like, like us, you know, mm -hmm. professionals. Yeah. If you're not going to explain it to them, and if you're not going to be taking them to like therapy or counseling to learn about it, they are going to probably learn from it from their peers or from social media or the internet. But there is no, like my kids aren't going to know about that, or they're not going to see that. Like they are going to learn about drugs. They are going to hear about this stuff some way or another. So do you want to have that? You want to learn about that and have that conversation earlier or do you want to do that when it's a lot more challenging yeah. when they're now in treatment or they're getting in trouble at school or do you want to have that earlier on with knowledge equipped before they learn from other resources yeah who do you want to teach who, who do you want teaching your child about this i mean do, yeah. do you want the street doing it uh, do you want drug dealers doing it do you want uh, peers that are using substances doing it or do you want uh, do you want to, to do it where you have uh, some ability to, to to transmit the information you know the the, the 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 thing out there that i think parents need to understand is these substances are widely available and kids know it. When we ask 
um, high school seniors, for example, how easy is it for you to get marijuana? Almost 80% of them tell us it's no big deal. They can find it if they want it. Almost 80% of them tell us finding alcohol is no big deal. They can get it if they want it. And about 30% tell us if they want to find a drug like LSD, they know where to go. So these drugs are widely available and kids know it. And the other thing is that they don't, they don't view these drugs as being harmful. So when we ask high school seniors, how harmful do you think it is to smoke marijuana almost every day? Only 30% tell us they think that's harmful. And we ask them, well, how harmful do you think it is for, for, for a teenager to have one or two drinks of alcohol nearly every day? Only about 24% think that's harmful. So the drugs are widely available and the perception of these kids is they're not dangerous. And one of the things I find parents fall into this this trap or this, this misunderstanding is a lot of times I hear they'll reference, well, when I was younger or when I was doing that, we also have to look at that drugs has also changed <laughs> over the years too. And it, it continues to change. I mean, one of the things that I always look at and do and pay attention to is what is going on with drugs, because it is not the same as it was five years ago, 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, that you can't base your knowledge of drugs today on what you grew up with. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, a good example is marijuana. The marijuana that your parents uh, might have been smoking uh, during Woodstock or, you know, in the 60s and 70s is nowhere near the kind of marijuana that's out there now. Back then it had a THC consent of maybe two to 3%. Now with the way it's being hydroponically grown and cultivated, that THC, that psychoactive component in marijuana is significantly higher than what it was back then. So yeah, parents, you might've been smoking marijuana, but, but believe me, the effect that it had on you is not the same effect that it's having on your kids. And how easy it is to get some of these substances, like you said, but even, yeah. even when you educate parents about it, they are often shocked and amazed when they hear some of the stories that I share. But I know, I know teens that were able to order substances like online through like oh, yeah. the dark web. Absolutely. And when I tell them what that looks like and how that is, they have no idea that that's, that they can do that. You know, some of the responses from parents are like, how is that possible? Or how can they do that? So it's not just because you know a buddy that does it or because you know someone that has a connection. Sometimes it is just as simple as going on a website yeah, and yeah. ordering it and it can get into the hands of that. And sometimes some very lethal substances like fentanyl that can happen. So if you're if parents aren't you know paying attention to those things that technology access and ordering things and all that does play a role in obtaining substances that that wasn't always common you know 10 20 years ago 
No, you know, kids aren't necessarily getting drugs from drug dealers who are standing around waiting for them. They're going on the internet. They're going to this dark web. Uh, and, and there are plenty of resources out there for these kids to basically order any drug they want and have it uh, and, and have it at their access at fairly cheap prices. Uh, the availability is just amazing, you know, and, and that's what technology has done. That's what computers have done. Uh, it, it's opened up that world where kids have multiple access to the substances. So that's why I really appreciate, even as a professional, when I read the, the book, it was just a really great refresher on that stuff. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I've been doing this for, you know, 16, 17 years. I know about this. I know about that. But you also have to get into the mindset of someone that doesn't know about this and the education that that can bring to someone by knowing some basics about brain development, about the substances in particular. And you do that in a way that breaks it down for a family member to understand. You're not trying to provide a whole textbook on the biochemistry of like cocaine. No, You're just just (laughs) trying to give a very quick reference to someone that can get an understanding or an education that can help them. Yeah, it, it can be as simple as as them hearing about a drug from from somebody and 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 going to the book and looking it up and and in just a couple of pages get get a quick overview of what that drug is uh, without a lot of the biochemistry technical language. It's pretty much uh, you know common language, but maybe they've never heard of this drug before. Maybe maybe their kid mentioned it. Maybe they heard it from another parent and they they never don't know anything about it. They can go to the book, flip to the page, and very quickly learn the basics of, of what this drug is all about. Maybe it's, you know, maybe they never heard of mushrooms, for example, other than the ones they cook with, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but yeah, that's why I put that in there because parents know about alcohol and the marijuana. That, that's pretty easy stuff, but they may not be familiar with some of these other drugs that are out there that, that kids have access to. And that they're still around. Like some yeah. people think it's one of the things I've talked about a lot in the last couple of years is the hallucinogens and that they are, they're making a rise, but they've always been around. They just went a little bit underground for a while. But when some parents think about hallucinogens, they don't think kids are using those or experimenting with them because they think like, oh, they're not around anymore, but hallucinogens are still around. And, yeah, and- the, the research shows that 4%, 4% of, of high school seniors are, are using LSD. Now, that doesn't seem like a high percentage compared to, you know, alcohol and marijuana, but 4% of high school seniors uh, are, are using a, a, a hallucinogen like, like LSD. Another 3% are using a drug like cocaine, and, and 1% to 2% are using some of these uh, drugs like Oxycontin and Vicodin and Adderall and Ritalin. So, so, yeah, this, it's just not always alcohol and marijuana. In, in your book, you talk about something that I thought was really insightful, where when we talk about addiction, we often talk about like cycles and, you know, like what they go through and what happens. But you talked about a cycle of control and out of control. Can you shed a little bit more light on that concept, because I think that's really important for parents to hear. I I think it's the difference between abusing a drug 
and becoming dependent on a drug. You know, many people will abuse a drug, uh, but they don't become dependent on it. And by that, I mean, you know, they don't have these catastrophic consequences as a result of using a substance. Uh, but, but, you know, abusing a drug can still have serious consequences to it. Adolescents basically abuse substances that can have the potential of growing into a dependency and they can become what we used to, what many people refer to as become addicted. We don't use addiction as a diagnosis. We never did. It has too much of a stigma to it, but you certainly can't move from abusing a substance, uh, you know, to, to, to into a situation where um, you're abuse becomes severe and has more severe consequences associated with it. I think that's always been hard in working with teenagers and adolescents because as professionals, like we, we see those signs and we look at what's going on, but it's such a weird period where like they're experimenting, they're, they're using it socially. And then all of a sudden it starts to progress into that. But sometimes the strong progression doesn't always show itself and still until like later on, like maybe in their twenties. But in that period where they're adolescents, it's such a difficult time where I think parents definitely are like, well, this is normal. Well, maybe this isn't completely normal. Maybe they're, (laughs) they're having some problems, but I, I think it's just very hard to necessarily look at that and be like, Oh yeah, they definitely have, they have an addiction. It's not easy to point that out all the time with adolescents. Well, and I point out in my book that if your child is using a substance and they get a diagnosis, the diagnosis is not going to be addiction. You're not going to label your child as being an addict that has too much of a stigma to it. We've moved away from using the old abuse and dependency categories, and now we call it a substance use disorder, which is more appropriate, recognizing it's a disorder like any other condition. And it can be mild, moderate, or severe. But, you know, no parent wants to hear that their child is an addict. No parent wants to hear that their child is addicted because it carries too much of a negative stigma to it. Um, but, but what's important is that we get an accurate diagnosis as to what is the extent of the child's use. Is he, in, is he or she in the mild category where maybe they're using very infrequently? Or are they in the moderate and severe category where their use is sort of ramped up and, and really causing some negative effects in their life? Here's a, that this just sparked a very interesting question. Do you think professionals need to spend more time when they make that diagnosis to explain what you just said with the difference with they're diagnosed with mild, they're diagnosed with, you know, severe. Do you think explaining what that means is something that should, there should be time devoted to giving an accurate explanation to the individual, the adolescent, as well as the parents? Well, usually when you give a diagnosis, you you would tell a family that the child has a a marijuana substance use disorder, Uh, not necessarily classifying it as mild, moderate, or severe. Uh, I, I think what's important is the parent 
begin to understand that that this use has developed into what we want to classify as a cannabis use disorder. Um, now, if it's in the severe category, that probably ramps it up to where you want to give more detail and explanation as to why that diagnosis is so severe. Uh, but but I, but it doesn't help. It doesn't hurt to educate parents on the continuum, you know, that that a child can have a mild or moderate or severe, because what you want to point out is your child might be in the mild category right now. But if use continues, they could escalate up into the moderate and the severe category. So I think from that standpoint, education is important. Yeah, I think too often it's looked at as like, is this a problem or is this not a problem? Like, yeah. Is there something really concerning here or are we good to go? It's like too much like all or nothing or black or white thinking yeah. or there there's there's a lot of room in between all that. Like maybe they're not as as bad as you might think it is, but it also doesn't mean that it's not a problem at all. Like if they are meeting some of the criteria, that's important criteria that needs to be addressed, even if it's just like one. Yeah. And if that one that one is probably having an impact on their life somewhere. And if it continues or it doesn't get addressed, that one could then eventually progress to more. But sometimes I get, I get, you know, parents coming in and they, they want to know if it's either like, is this, is this a problem? Is this pretty bad? Or are we good? And it's like, <laughs> that's, it's a lot more complicated than that yeah they want easy answers uh, and those aren't always available uh, but you're absolutely right it may only be exhibiting in in one area but if you don't get on top of it it could very quickly become two three four five areas and get out of control fairly quickly when i first uh got the book and workbook in and opened it up it was it, it brought back a really great feel to a lot of the resources and stuff that when I first started in my career were so commonly used. It seems like nowadays, like with technology and like smartphone apps, we've like moved away from like workbooks and stuff like this. So it was really good to see this still being applied. Do you still get the sense that things like workbooks and things like this still have that value that's needed as opposed to what's the next app for me to use and some other things like yeah. that. I, I think the workbooks uh, can, can be a very important resource for a parent who's going through this because parents need help too. The, the entire family is affected by a child who is abusing substances or drinking alcohol. And, and, and parents often are left out in the cold, so to speak, in terms of people, people helping them. Um, so the reason I put that workbook together was to at least give them a very brief uh, workbook that would allow them to process some of these feelings. Um, you know, I, I don't know of any other workbooks that are out there specifically targeting this population, but I yeah. do know uh, that, that parents need help and they need support. I think that this, this workbook is best used in consultation with a counselor, a therapist, an addictions person, uh, somebody that they can sit down with and maybe go through some of these exercises 
exercises or at least get some feedback in those exercises. I think that's the best way to use this workbook. Absolutely. I can imagine like the letter to my child is a great exercise. It's one I think I think exercises like that have sometimes gone away and been pushed out. I, I think they're fantastic. But I also agree, like I just wouldn't want I wouldn't recommend someone just write a letter about it to their child and not want someone to look it over because that, that, that could not go well too. I mean, I'm not saying it, that's the intention of it, but I could see just, well, write a letter to your child about, you know, this and they, that could go poorly if it's not like processed and and what's the purpose of this, what's the goal of this. So I do now that's interesting though. Have you ever had someone get the workbook and think like this is something that they were going to give to their child. And then they realize, (laughs) Oh, this is actually for me. Like I have to put some work into this. You ever gotten that response? I haven't got that response (laughs) of it. I don't, I don't know that the workbook is, 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 is out there that much right now, but uh, I I think if they at least open up the cover (laughs) and read the introduction, they'll, they'll get the idea that, that, that it's for them. And it, it, it is labeled parent workbook. Yeah, I can imagine some some parents that I've worked with who I would be like, hey, this is this is for you. <laughs> they might think like, oh, this is something that is I'm going to have my child do. But then they look at it and they realize, oh, this is actually for me. For me. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think it can be a powerful uh, exercise if it's used in conjunction with somebody like yourself, for example, that can give them feedback on, on what they're doing, whether it's the letter or some other exercise in there, just to share it with a professional and get some feedback and help process some of that stuff. I think that can be very powerful. Yeah, I think the one that one of the, there's a couple exercises and I do want to talk about some of those. One of them was like the family history. And I find this intriguing. I'm interested to know what your thoughts are with it is I I've worked with with kids who they will talk about their use. They'll talk about their family history use. I'll talk with the parents and their parents will sometimes talk about like their family history of use and they might acknowledge that there's some alcoholics in the family or there's some family members that struggled with like this mental health illness and and they'll acknowledge that so as i'm imagining like a genogram (laughs) in my mind like i'm seeing like the child the parents and the family that came before them but somewhere along the line parents sort of miss the role their use had in this. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes they'll acknowledge that there's been a family history of alcoholism or like, you know, smoking pot or using drugs. They'll talk about their kids and what issue that the kid is having, but they won't always look at their own use of like alcohol or marijuana or other things and how that may have played some role in what's going on. I'm I'm curious to know your thoughts about that. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think parents tend to minimize their own substance use, whether it's marijuana or alcohol, even though it's in the long history of the genetics of the family. Uh, they always look at it as relative to, well, you know, this is not a problem for me. It's a problem for my kid. And, and oftentimes they, they, they don't really want to talk about either the family history or their own use of substances. And that's unfortunate because I think that's contributing to some of the use that we're seeing among the kids. I remember I worked with, I worked with this, this individual for, he was drinking and one of the, I was working with him for a while. And one weekend his parents were gone and he threw a party um, at the house and had friends over and definitely was alcohol mm-hmm. all over the place. And I found it very intriguing because when the parents told me about it, you know, they weren't happy. They weren't pleased. No surprise there. But what stood out was one of them told me that when they got home and saw how everything was, they said it looked just like one of the parties we would throw. (laughs) And in my mind, I'm like, oh, like I I wonder then where he saw those things or how like that just isn't like a magic coincidence. Like yeah. he saw things like that. And then when he did it, it, it was very similar, but they couldn't make that connection. <laughs> No, they can't draw the connection between their past behavior and, and, and this boy's behavior. They can't draw the connection between if they knew their child had a history of using alcohol. They can't draw the connection between leaving for a day or two and leaving all that alcohol easily accessible to the child or creating a situation where the kid can invite all of his friends over and they all bring alcohol. No, that doesn't register. Um, you know, even though that may very well be exactly what they did when they were growing up as teenagers and had those kinds of parties for somehow uh, the, the idea that this can happen with their kid just doesn't cross their mind. Or if it does, they minimize it. And it's nothing to, you know, like shame parents over or to say how bad of parents they are. Like that's that's never the message that I I give with that. But what I tell parents so out of the many messages I try to tell parents, the the one we already talked about, which is who they're going to learn from. But the other one is I always tell them that children will never know everything, but they will know more than you think. So whatever you think they know, imagine it's much more than that, but they're not going to know all of it. So I like kids will know like, Oh, mom or dad are, they're sick. They're lying on the couch. You know, they were, you know, something wasn't right. You know, when they get older, they kind of realize, well, this is always around. Like there's cans or, you know, whatever the case may be. But a lot of times I'll have parents who tell me, I had another case where I worked with a, I worked with a, the two kids, uh, two teenagers and the parents had a lot of drinking that were going on. And I, I met with the parents for a session 
And I was asking him, well, what do, what do you think the kids know about what's going on with like the alcohol and, and some of the, the issues that are going on between you two. And they're like, Oh, we don't think they are aware of it. We don't think they see it. Next session. I meet with the kids and they pretty clearly identified right away. They've got a problem with alcohol. Yeah. Like it was, (laughs) it was so obvious. That's why I always tell parents like they, they will never know all of it, but they will know more than you think. Yeah, I so, think that's very true. So when they see things, when they look at things, when things are out, when it's, they will pick that up even at very young ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very observant. Uh, yeah. and, and they, they see things that, that parents don't, don't know that they see. And, and, and then they draw conclusions. And, and many times the conclusions that they, that they come to are correct. Right. So that's just where those things that we talk about with not to say like a parent can't have any alcohol, but there's got to be more of that paying attention to a lot of those things that if you don't pay attention to those things or look at what is your child doing or what they have access to, that's they might see you taking a, a pill from a bottle and it might be something that's okay for you to take, but if that isn't safely stored or not access to them, they could simply see that and think that's okay to do. Yeah. And, and I make that point in the book that if you have alcohol in your house, you have even over-the-counter or prescription drugs in your house, you, you need to secure those because these kids are very smart. They know how to get into this stuff. If they want to get into the medicine cabinet, they're not going to take all the pills. They're going to take only, uh, only a few. Um, I had a young man who uh, <clears throat> was drinking alcohol. And uh, he'd go to the family medicine, uh, family uh, liquor cabinet, and he'd look for gin or vodka because it's clear. And he would take the little that he wanted. He replace it with water. And eventually, the family caught on. But uh, uh, they're not going to take everything that you have, but they're going to take a, a fair share of it. And and and, it, and when it comes to, to prescription drugs and over the counter drugs that you store maybe in a medicine cabinet, you may never know what they've taken. That's scary too. When people and the the opioid epidemic shed a lot of light on how easy of access that became, because a lot of people kept medications around for a very long time. They had it stored, you know, just in case, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that they might need it. But the the problem with that is that a lot of people had access to those type of meds that that's, it was never for them. I mean, the, the number of people that got prescription meds from someone they know or from their own home, from someone else or from an old prescription, it was a really shocking amount of people that could just get something like a prescription opioid from a a family member because it was just in the cabinet. That's right. These drugs are readily available in the home, many cases, uh, and, and, and kids know it or they hear about it from their friends. Um, so parents need to be very careful about any of those over-the-counter or prescription drugs that they have, as well as alcohol. Uh, one, of the other, one of the other exercises that in this workbook <clears throat> that I, I want to know about is the interventions. I thought that was a, a really insightful 
part to add to it where when you discovered your child was using, you may have tried to intervene and end their use. And you, you look at examples of what that looks like and you really encourage them to list the interventions they've tried and whether you believe they have been successful at doing it. I, I thought that was a really great exercise because one, looking at what have you tried and what was the outcome of it and why do you think it wasn't? But I've also worked with quite a bit of family members who continue to try the same interventions <laughs> with um, expecting different results yeah. and not realizing that that's part of that's the insanity quote is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I would see family members tell me like, we keep doing this and we're doing this and well, this is what we have to do, but I'm not seeing anything change. How do you, how do you respond to someone who's talking to you about the rules that they're setting and the consequences, but you're not seeing a change in results? How do you respond to that or talk to a parent about that? Well, and, and, and you're right on with the per point of the exercise is to bring awareness to parents that, you know, these things that they've tried just aren't working. Now, you can continue to try them and hope that they, they work, but history says that they're not likely to work. So we got to try something different. And let's, let's explore what we, can, what we can try different, because what you've been doing in the past just is, 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 has not been successful and then probably not going to be. So um, just being aware, I think, as a parent that these things aren't working uh, and, and having some reflection on that uh, is the first step to coming up with a different plan. Yeah, I, I really think that that's just a great exercise because I always, always tell everyone that before they come to therapy, before they come to counseling, before they come to treatment, they have probably tried things their way. Whether that's the individual who has tried, whether that's the, the parents, but usually coming to therapy is not like option number one. It's usually <laughs> after a bunch haven't worked, but I still see some parents struggle with still using some of the ones that haven't worked. And I think there's a bunch of different dynamics to that. I think it's, they don't have all the tools. They don't have all the education and knowledge. I think sometimes they think of, well, this worked for me. I, it should work for, for my kid. So, yeah, and I, and I think also they operate out of a basis of fear and alarm, and their first reaction is to come down rather hard, you know, to threaten the kid or try to restrict the kid or try to punish the kid. Uh, and that sends a very negative message that the child is likely to rebel against and make, the, make it worse. Um, and, and, but I think parents are just uh, in a crisis mode. And when they get in a crisis mode, the first thing they want to do is tell the kid, you better not do this. And if you do, this is what's going to happen, or I'm going to ground you for a week to teach you a lesson. Well, the only lesson that's learned is, you know, I got to find a different way to get around this. With family members, uh, you know, parents and whatnot, I've also noticed that it's important to try and educate them on once your child does like go to treatment 
or once they do go to counseling, I think there needs to be more of a educating on what do we do now? Because we're kind of trusting someone else to take care of them or to help them. But we also don't want to just do nothing. I know that's difficult for a family member to maybe relinquish control and trust. Um, how, how do you, what do you recommend to parents, how they handle when their child now is seeking professional services? How do they manage that? Well, no kid wants to go into counseling. Uh, they don't want to go into a treatment center either. I, uh, you know, I've seen them come into Menninger fighting and yelling and bargaining and screaming and the parents held the ground. And after a, after a few days or a week, they sort of settled down and eventually got into the program and engaged in treatment and did remarkably well. Um, it, it, it's hard for parents to give up that control, uh, but, but, but that gets to the point of um, if your child needs treatment, whether it's uh, outpatient or intensive outpatient or it, the child needs residential treatment, it's, it's very important that you understand what a good treatment program looks like, what an evidence-based treatment looks like, that you ask the right questions. And I have in my book a series of questions that parents can ask providers so that you are engaged in the process and you feel confident that who is taking care of your child is a professional with experience to be able to deal with this issue. Knowing that, I think, will hopefully help you feel more confident that your child is getting good care. I love the questions that you, and, and as a treatment provider, as someone that's worked in group homes, residential, all that, the questions that you provide for parents to consider are great to ask. And I don't think that people necessarily look to it because I, I see a lot as someone wants to get their child into therapy or counseling and they're able to do that. And they're just sort of like relieved that they're at some place because we yeah. know treatment's not always easy, accessible for everyone. Sometimes there's wait lists. Sometimes it's far away, whatever the case may be. So sometimes they're able to get them in and they're just thankful that they're in. They don't necessarily think to ask some of those questions about it. And yeah, they, they don't as a, uh, as a treatment provider, and as someone that has worked with programs and run programs and all that, to me, that, that gold standard is we would want to send someone that we care about to that place, that, that we trust that place. Right. So if I had someone that had a kid that had a problem with drugs or alcohol, I'd want to send them there. And that's kind of like that gold standard that I always talk about when we're providing care. That's the, the type of place we want to do. And there's nothing wrong with anyone wanting to hold a place to providing quality treatment and quality services. And, and most parents don't know what's involved 
with that kind of a program. And that's why in my book, there is a chapter on how do you, how do you identify a good evidence-based program? Uh, parents are going to be in a crisis mode when this happens. You know, they're going to be told your child needs residential treatment. And that's usually because of one or two cases, or sometimes both. The child has a very serious underlying mental health issue. Maybe it's anxiety, depression, maybe it's an emerging personality disorder, uh, but there is a serious mental health issue on top of a serious substance abuse issue. So when you have those two serious issues, that child most likely is going to be referred to a residential treatment program. Uh, and, and, and you want to be very careful in terms of the quality of that residential program because your child's going to be there for a while. This is right. not going to be this is not going to be a 20 or a 30 day program in most cases. So you want to be able to uh, identify the program, ask the appropriate questions, and feel that you are sending your child to a quality program. Um, and you can get recommendations on those programs from hopefully the people who have done the assessments uh, and, and given you the, the recommendations. One thing you did talk about too in your book, which <laughs> I've been, as I've been talking to some more people and reading some more books, tying this into physicians, because one of the things that you talked about was a physician being able to provide a referral and, and whatnot. Is there a, a reason why you identified physicians as having a key role or a role in general in that type of referral base? Yes. And the reason was that uh, most parents will send their child in for a, a physical exam, um, if not every year, but, but it's required uh, for certain, certain uh, school activities or to enter a certain grade. There'll be a, a school required physical examination. Other parents may send their child routinely in for a physical exam every couple of years. And I think parents should at least mention to the physician, hey, I don't know if anything things going on. This may or may not be an issue, but could you do a, a, a fairly rapid screen on alcohol and drug use? Uh, and there are instruments out there, I, I, physicians may or may not be aware of them, where you can ask like four or five very simple questions and get a rapid screen that will either indicate further assessments needed or it's not. But I think since parents oftentimes send their kid in for a physical exam, uh, asking the physician to just include that within the interview uh, is just another step in the process. Do you think that's difficult for some families to do because, you know, parents and families sometimes develop that relationship with a physician that they've known them for so long, or we send our whole family to see you that now all of a sudden asking about, oh, can you also look at like alcohol and drug use? Do you think that's just something that parents are, maybe they want to do or they think to do, but are a little bit concerned with like stigma and like what that would look like? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the physician is likely to respond by, you know, asking, what well, do you think there's a problem? Um, and certainly if you, if you have an indication that there's a problem, you should say, yeah, I've noticed these behaviors. I'm concerned that may or may not be related to substance abuse, but could you, could you ask a few questions and, 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 and check it out for me? Um, I think 
parents are more likely to do that if they suspect there's a problem. If they don't suspect a problem, the thought probably never enters their mind that they should ask the physician. And I've also read, like I was, I was sharing a couple of books and I've talked with some people where the physician noticing something or saying something was impactful. I remember there was, I had a guest who wrote a book called Ice Water, Please. And his daughter was like in her twenties and the went to a doctor and the doctor made some mention about the alcohol use. And that was like a turning point for her to get that address. And there was another one where a doctor made mention about concerns with uh, an eating disorder. And that led to getting some help. So I've been noticing this trend with physicians looking at things, recognizing things, but saying something about it to help someone. And that, that's been really it, you know, motivating and, and inspiring to hear that happening. Yes, it is. And I, and I think that's great. And I hope more physicians be, are able to do that and sort of routinely build that into their physical examinations of, of adolescents. Uh, it, it may end up catching some things that otherwise might go unnoticed for, for a much longer period of time. You're going to be seeing the child. You're doing all these other physical exams. It just takes you know, a little bit of time to uh, do this other assessment. I know now, like, as I've been older, like I get asked questions, but I also remember that I wasn't asked those when I was younger. Yeah. They tend so, to ask you that when you get to be an adult, you know, they might routinely ask, well, are you, uh, you know, how many drinks do you usually have? You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you smoke, do you smoke cigarettes? Do you consume alcohol? Yeah. I get those asked more when I'm older, but I don't remember being ever asked that when I was younger. And it's no, like, you probably you probably weren't, and and yeah. that's part of the problem. Those same questions are, are probably more appropriate for an adolescent because they're more likely to be abusing those substances. Yeah, asking me when I'm 37 versus asking me when I'm 17 is well, I, you know, <laughs> if, if they ask you how many drinks did you have at 37 you're going to give them a different answer than you likely said how many drinks did you have when you were 16 <laughs> yeah so it's that's why i'm i'm very it's really good to hear more stories from people where their physicians did ask those types of questions and you kind of tie in that they have the perfect opportunity when they're younger because they do often have to see the doctor or go in for physicals or do something because of school related activities. When you're an adult, you can sometimes skirt that for, for quite a while, but yeah. when you're younger, you are more likely to have those office visits. And that's where we can get sort of ahead of some problems or issues, or at least be able to let people know that, you will get asked those questions. Yeah, and 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 if if the child has a history of, of seeing that particular physician, perhaps they've seen him a number of times and and developed at least some type of relationship with that that physician, a relationship of trust that's been built up over over a number of years. Uh, the child may be more likely to reveal some things to that physician that they may not want to reveal to their parents or to the school counselor or school principal because they've worked with this physician in the past and, and they have a certain degree of trust. 
Now, as you bring that up, this is a, a good point. I know it's written for, for parents. Uh, I know as a, a counselor who works with kids, who works with parents, this is a, a good resource to, to, to read and be aware of and have as, as tools to provide. We just talked about physicians and you know them being able to recognize, ask questions and, and help out as well. But then you also mentioned you know, like school counselors and school personnel, I imagine they have a role or a potential role in helping with these issues too. Is this something that they could use as well, even though it says it's for parents, but do you find that that could be a use for them as well? I think that this is can be potentially a, a good resource for school counselors to use with parents. Uh, to, to have on their bookshelf or maybe have uh, some copies of it so that if they are uh, dealing with this issue, they have a handy resource. Uh, if they don't want to give them a copy of it uh, because of the budget or whatever else, at least it's a resource that they can recommend to the parents. Um, I think it's also a resource that can be used with, um, you know, with parent-teacher associations so that if, if a counselor is giving a presentation, say, to parents, uh, about substance abuse, they can they can refer to this as being a resource. The more we can get this resource out to parents, the more likely we are to have them be educated and, and intervene at earlier stages. So school counselors, school social workers, uh, I, I think are very appropriate uh, audiences to, to, to have this book. Yeah, I think part of that is whoever works with kids I always say when you work with kids, you work with parents. That, yeah. That's part of, I, I know some people, some professionals who are, I don't work with kids because I don't, because I don't want to work with the parents. <laughs> but part of it is if you do work with kids, whether that be whatever your role is, is a, a, a school counselor or a teacher, a, a therapist, if it's health related, if it's sports related, whatever area you work with kids, there is always that, that chance that you will, you could notice something, see a warning sign that could be substance use related or, or mental health related. And, you know, how you address that, you might tell the parent, we had, there's a concern. You might tell them this is something going on. But they need more than than that. And now you've got this resource that people could literally recommend saying this might be something that might help you learn something. or This might help you pay attention to what's going on. Or if you're concerned about your child or you might be worried something's going on, this might have some resources or some answers. So a real useful tool for those who work with kids who will eventually talk with or communicate with the parents. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it can be a very valuable tool uh, for parents. My goal was to, um, to, to educate them, uh, to make them more knowledgeable, uh, less paranoid, less fearful, and to feel as if, if they're confronted with this situation, um, they, have a, they have a resource that can sort of guide them down the path. And this is something that's just been talked about before we even started with the, the episode we were talking about that there's just 
more of a need for resources for families. You know, families yes. need more. We've, we focused a lot on getting resources for the people who are, have issues or who have use disorders and, you know, getting them treatment, getting them help. But there's, there's a, also a need for the family members, the loved ones who are dealing with this because they are impacted one way or another. It's, it affects them. And as we started out with this discussion, they're not just given these answers. They're not just equipped with this. Just becoming a parent doesn't give you all those answers and knowledge to something as serious as substance use. And we yeah. need to work on getting more of that into their hands so that when these things start to occur or happen, or even at a young age, just having that to support parents is extremely valuable. Yeah, I think it is. I think knowledge is power. And the more knowledge parents have uh, about this particular issue of adolescent substance abuse, the more confident they feel, the less paranoid they feel. And if they are in a situation where they have to deal with it, uh, it's, it's, it's still going to be a crisis, but it's going to be a crisis that can be manageable with a plan. So I, I really want to thank you for sending the book and joining for this podcast episode. It shed a lot of light on a really valuable resource for parents in particular and parents to help their, their child and not necessarily this is a resource for the child, but for the parent who is trying to help the child. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to the program. I really appreciate your contributions to the discussion, your own personal perspective to the adolescent uh, substance abuse. I think that made for this discussion to be much more valuable and hopefully uh, more informative for, for everybody who, uh, who has an opportunity to listen. So I thank you for not only the opportunity to be here, but also for engaging in the discussion and contributing to it. And if people have further questions and they want to follow up, you know, they can email them or they can let us know. And you said you'd be more than happy to return and even do maybe a Q&A related to, to families or to the, a child with an addiction. You would be you'd be open to that. Absolutely. If anybody hears this, uh, uh, this interview and there's a question that they have or there's an issue that, that they would like for us to discuss, if they'll just let you know about that, uh, we can compile a list of them and we'll do another session where we can specifically address their questions and their issues. Yeah, that'd be great to get some questions and just do a straightforward Q&A on yeah. some of these issues. And the best place for them to go to get a copy of the book and workbook is helptheaddictedchild.com, correct? Yes, you can go to the book's website, helptheaddictedchild.com. On the website, you'll be able to read uh, endorsements and reviews. You can take a look at a sample chapter. There'll be a link that will take you to Amazon where you can get the book, uh, which is available either in Kindle 
or in paperback format. And also uh, it will uh, take you to where you can order the parent workbook. Uh, and if you're a parent, I really would encourage you to get the basic book and also the workbook and, uh, and keep them uh, on hand. Um, you may need them at some point, but you'll at least get the information or you may know another, another family or a friend that could benefit from maybe you loaning, your, loaning them your copy. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing because it doesn't have to be read necessarily front to back. Like you said, it's more of a, it's a resource guide. So you can have it. And then if something comes up or a word happens, or you're concerned about something, you can literally pull this out and make quick reference to it. It's not something you have to spend a lot of time searching for. Yeah, you don't have to read a lot of research. You don't have to go through volumes of material. It's, uh, I kept it to around 100 pages, uh, and it will have the basic information so that if you have a question or something comes up and you want a handy resource, it's right there for you. Yeah. So send us your, your questions for anyone who's listening and wants to know more. We are more than welcome to take those and follow up in another episode the book is The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. And there is also the workbook that goes along with it. And to learn more, go to helptheaddictedchild.com. And once again, Richard, just want to thank you for joining, sharing this with us. This is definitely a valuable resource for family members to help their children. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to speak with me and to contribute to the discussion, which I hope everyone finds helpful and informative. So I just want to, uh, again, say thank you so much for uh, having me on the program. Yeah, my pleasure. So read the book, think of some questions, visit the website. And as always, we hope you learn something.